Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see changed lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. But my name is Jamie Wright. The most important thing for you to know about me is that I am a beloved daughter of our Lord. Um, Now, another thing you might be interested to know is that my husband, Ryan Wright, is on staff at the Piqua version of the Valley Church, okay? So my normal home church is just like 10 minutes to the north. It's your sister church. But I'm so excited to be here with you today in Troy because I actually live in Troy with my family. I love this town, and I really enjoy every time I get to be here and worship with you all. So another thing that you might be interested to know, and this is actually the reason why I get to talk to you today, is I am a mental health counselor professionally. That's what I do uh, every single work day. I'm in there in my office sitting with people in their deep feelings, uh, working to navigate the emotional landmines, you know. Um, so this is kind of like I get to do my job, but on a bigger scale today, because um, we're in the middle of this series that's talking about some of the ways that we can get tripped up by thinking past patterns, by mental health concerns. So I am just so excited to be with you today and to get to um, share with you what I feel like God put on my heart. See, we're talking about shame today. (laughs) Aren't you excited? It's everybody's favorite emotion, shame, yay. Um, Before you, you know, walk out the back or turn off the stream, uh, sit with me a minute. I know it's an uncomfortable emotion, but here's the thing. I really and truly believe that God wants to relieve you of a burden today. Okay, so here's the thing. I have two sons, okay? Ryan and I have two boys. They're ages 10 and 8. And my 8-year-old happens to have the heaviest backpack in the world. At least that's his opinion on the matter, okay? He goes to school every morning, especially in a new school year, but other times too. He goes to school in the morning like absolutely leaning down like he's going to die, you know? Walks into the school like he's overburdened. But then he walks home that way, too. Like, it's, he's been carrying it all day. I know he hasn't, right? But he walks like he has. But then something happens. When he walks into our house at the end of the day, he straightens up, he throws this thing off his shoulders, and it goes thunk onto the floor, which worries me a little bit because they have Chromebooks now, you know? Um, I'm not so sure about that, but suddenly he's transformed. He's a completely new kid, right? He runs upstairs, he grabs his Legos, he throws them around the house. Um, He climbs his older brother, he's asking me for snacks. He's doing all of the energetic and wonderful and, you know, things that a kid does when he's eight years old, right? He is completely unburdened, and it's made him a new person. So that's the kind of transformation I want for you to experience today. Because here's the thing, shame can be a huge burden that we carry around right? I think you know this kind of just inherently, right? Because we've all dealt with shame. Everybody experiences it, okay? It's a human emotion that everyone deals with at some point. But the idea of it weighing us down at all times, that's not the story that God has for us, okay? So we're going to talk about what it looks like to let go of that huge burden today. But first of all, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about what shame is, Okay, the definition I'm working with today is actually from Brene Brown, who's a shame researcher, a psychologist. She's written a lot of books. You may have seen her on the shelves, Um, but she uses this definition. She says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Okay, so shame is this identity focused. I am bad feeling. Okay, it's different from guilt. Guilt is the I did a bad thing feeling, okay, but shame is the I am bad. So guilt might be, oh, I hurt my friend's feelings. Ah, I need to apologize, right? I did a bad, right? But shame is the I'm the worst friend in the world, you know, can't believe I did it again. I'm the worst. That's shame, okay? When it gets into our identity, that's shame. Now, if you recognize that you also deal with toxic guilt and that's something that you're also carrying around, stay tuned, okay? Because some of what we're talking about today also applies to that. But the truth is, we're talking specifically about shame, about the way that we can get these identities that we carry around with us that just weigh us down. Now, for a lot of us, shame becomes a part of our story when we're still really little, okay? So maybe when you were growing up, your parents didn't have as much money as some other kids, and you got made fun of at school for having secondhand clothing, okay? And you started to think of yourself as poor. Maybe you had a teacher who didn't have a lot of patience or didn't explain concepts very well, and when you made mistakes at the board, she got real harsh, 
and you start to think of yourself as stupid, right? Maybe you had a harsh parent who didn't have patience for you, who maybe was abusive or was caught in their own shame patterns, and you start to think of yourself as worthless or in the way, right? So my guess is that for you, your own shame story is coming up right now, okay? Don't go there right now. Don't, don't sink into that. Stay with me here because here's the thing. God wants to free you from that today. He wants to give you a new identity, a new way of being, okay? Now, I understand that when I talk about relieving us from shame, getting rid of guilt, getting rid of shame, deactivating it, some people get a little uncomfortable, right? Because some of us, if you grew up in a church, you may have grown up in the kind of church that used shame and guilt a lot, okay, to try and keep you in line, all right? Sometimes we kind of fall into these patterns if we're not careful where we say, well, if I don't think I'm terrible all the time, how will I know that I need God's grace, right? As if they'll know that we're, you know, they'll know that we're Christians by our crushing shame. Um, that's, not, that's not how it goes, by the way. So they know that we're Christians by our love, right? It's very different. But we think it's the shame that keeps us in line. And so we're uncomfortable with the idea of deactivating it or letting it go. But that's not what Scripture has for us, okay? That's a cultural thing that happened. That's not the truth of God's Word. This is the truth of God's Word. And we find it in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I feel like I could stop right there, but I'm not going to. Um, For in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then later in that same chapter, in verses 14 and 15, we read, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, right? I get really excited about that, obviously. Um, But that's a whole separate sermon, so I'm not going to follow that path any longer. But if you need to know more about what Christ did for you on the cross, I encourage you today, find one of your pastors. Talk to them after the service today, okay? The Lord has something good for you in that. Um, But the point is, when we talk about deactivating shame, that's what Christ has for us. He wants to give us a new identity and a new way of being. Now, the Bible actually talks about shame a lot, okay? It's all over Scripture. Whenever I'm in the Psalms, I notice it especially. You know, it's like, oh, Lord, do not let me be put to shame. Let my enemies be put to shame instead, please, you know, Um, which I can kind of feel that sentiment, you know. But that's not normally the way we talk, okay? It's all over Scripture, though, and once you start to look for it, you notice it even more. Here's the reason for that. Shame was and still is a huge cultural force in the Middle East and in the culture of Jesus' day, okay? And it actually has a lot of cultural power in other parts of the non-Western world as well. Just from like thousands of years ago, that's been like a main driver in how society keeps itself going is by the use of shame. Now, I believe, and I think you'll probably agree with me, that shame is becoming more and more of a cultural force in our culture as well, especially with the advent of social media, right? It feels like every other day we're seeing a celebrity or a public figure who has gotten such a shame beating on Twitter that they have completely retreated from public life, right? Maybe they lost their job. Sometimes it feels like it's deserved, sometimes it doesn't, okay? But They've, they've been serious real-world consequences because of the shame that gets thrown around online. If you want to find it, I'm betting every single day on Facebook, you could find your relatives, your acquaintances throwing shame mud on Facebook, right? It's there. You might be one of the people who's doing it. You know, don't tell me. Um, but the, the point is, we know. We see it every day, right? I can't. What kind of a mother are you that you think that's an okay thing to do? What kind of a Christian are you that you think that, right? Oh, this kind of people make me sick, you know? Ugh, shame mud, right? Just being thrown at people created in the image of God. It's everywhere right now, okay? So you're swimming in it sometimes, But here's the difference. The shame that's talked about in Scripture and the shame that is still more practiced in other parts of the world is different from the kind of shame that we experience on social media, okay? The difference is that they have different goals. The kind of shame that we experience every day, that shame that we see thrown around all the time, usually has the goal of pushing away. Of, of getting rid of, right? Like, I don't want this person in my life. I don't, I don't want this idea accepted in society. Get out of here, right? It's a push away kind of shame. But 
Shame that's found in scripture, shame that's found in other parts of the world has a different goal. The goal is actually to bring people in, interestingly enough. It's a shame that invites people back into right relationship with one another and with God's way, okay? So that's super different, right? Because that's not what we experience usually. I'm betting when most of you think of shame, it's this kind of shame. It's that toxic, isolating, like shut down kind of shame. And that is what we're looking to deactivate today. I got a really good example of this in Scripture, this better, healthier kind of shame in Scripture, okay? So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to spend just a minute there. Um, The church in Corinth was a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul. He was the first missionary. He went all over the Roman world and planted these little churches, stayed there with them for a little bit, and then went on his way and planted another church, and it was great. But sometimes when Paul left, things would go wrong, right? And Corinth was one of the churches where things started to go wrong. Corinth had a lot of problems, okay? They were in conflict with each other all the time. They were fighting about stupid things, some things that were important, but some things that really, really weren't, okay? But they would get so up in arms with each other, they were actually bringing one another to court, to public court, rather than trying to resolve their differences in the body, okay? They were tolerating all kinds of sin in their community, sin that was not okay, even in the broader secular culture of their day. So they were putting up with a lot of garbage, and Paul started to catch wind of this when he was traveling around. He heard of what was going on in Corinth, and it made him a little bit concerned, and so he wrote 1 Corinthians. And we're going to pick up that story in 1 Corinthians, um, just one quick verse in there. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, we have the apostle explicitly saying, I say this to shame you, very directly, right? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? So he's calling them out, right? Right then and there, he's saying, return to a right relationship with each other and with God. Do it the way you know you're supposed to. He's not saying kick these people out of the church. He's using shame to say, straighten up, get yourselves together, okay? Now, we know that things didn't get better in Corinth right away. In fact, biblical scholars think we're missing a book. They think that we're missing a letter from Paul to the Corinthians between 1 and 2 Corinthians, so like a one and a half Corinthians, if you want to. And in one and a half Corinthians, we know that Paul laid it on even heavier, right? He was probably even harsher in that book because things hadn't gotten better yet. But in 2 Corinthians, the book that we do have, we see Paul talking to the church, and he has a little bit different tone. So I want to pick up the story there. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So verse 10, that one that's right in the middle of that passage is the one I really want us to focus on today. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's the kind of shame that we're talking about today that God wants to free you from. The shame that you carry is only leading to death, okay? And God wants to free you from that. If it's a little bit of like a twinge here and there, and you're like, ooh, I didn't like that, you know, and you move through it, and you repent, and you go back to right relationship with others, and it leaves no scar, no stain, that's fine. God's using it. Leave it alone. But if you're experiencing the kind of shame that leads to death, God wants to give you something new today. So um, let me um, give you a little example of what Jesus did to release people from shame. You see, Jesus was in the business of releasing people from shame wounds all over scripture. Pretty much every time you see him healing someone, he's also releasing them from the burden of their sin and their shame. And it's beautiful to see, but this is one of my favorite stories about a person being released from shame. We're going to look in scripture. It's a familiar story found in John chapter 4. So if you want to grab your Bible and turn there today... 
We're just going to take a couple minutes, read through the whole story, and then we're going to talk through it, okay? Just give me a second. I need to drink something first. Okay, so we're starting in verse 4 of chapter 4. Now he, that's Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, for, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, see, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I'm skipping down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of the words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Um, I get excited every time I read that story because I love to see this story of this woman transformed by her encounter with Jesus and her whole community transformed. We're going to get to that in a second. First, I want to point out, though, that this woman is definitely dealing with shame, okay? We talked about how shame sinks into our identity, right? It becomes a part of who we are. It becomes a label that we carry around and say, this is who I am, right? And this woman was clearly carrying around some labels, some shame labels, right? The first thing she says to Jesus is, are you sure you want to be talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and a woman. Are you serious? You really sure? Right? Being a Samaritan was a big deal. Samaria was the area just north of where the Jews primarily lived, and it was a region that was occupied by the Samaritan people. They were a group of people that were related to the Jews, but did not keep faith in the same way the Jews did, okay? They, they worshiped Yahweh, but they also had a long history of worshiping all the other gods of the area as well. They had intermarried with all these other people groups. They hadn't kept themselves to what God's word said, and so the Jews hated them. They did not want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. In fact, a lot of Jews would not even willingly go through Samaritan-occupied areas. They would go the long way around if they had to travel because they did not want to interact with a Samaritan if they could possibly help it. Additionally, this person was a woman, right? Now, we know 
what gender you are has an impact on your identity even today, but back then women were not given any kind of real status or any kind of respect in society, and especially a Samaritan woman would have been seen as lower, much, much lower than even a Jewish woman. There were Jewish rabbis who would suggest that men that they, were, that they had in their communities not even be seen in public speaking with a woman, even one that they were related to. So you couldn't go grab coffee with your daughter or your wife because it might look bad. Okay, being a woman was a big deal. We also know that this woman had a past, right? She had been married five times. She had a relationship that she wasn't married in. So we don't know her whole story, but we know that nowadays, if a person has a pattern of life, they can get a reputation, right? Regardless of what the whole story is, we know that we carry labels, unkind labels about the things that we've experienced and the choices that we've made. And so this woman was someone absolutely weighed down by identity shame, okay? Now, we don't know her whole story like I said, but you know your story, and I'm betting your shame is also wrapped up in some identity things, right? Maybe it's because of race or family background. Maybe it's because of um, the amount of money you make or the kind of job that you have. It might be because of things that you've done in the past or things that were done to you. Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with our choices, right? But you may have adopted shame as a part of your identity. Now, shame, once it's there and it sinks in and we accept it as a part of our identity, what happens is it forms what uh, we like to do, maybe call a shame trigger, to, to overuse that word. But what happens is when someone accidentally activates it, we're in the middle of a shame snowball at that point, right? You know the old cartoon trope where like you throw the little snowball at the top of the hill and it rolls, picks up all the steam, flattens a car at the bottom of the hill. That's what shame starts to do. Once it's in our identity, it can be activated like that and start to snowball on us. So let me give you an example from my own life, okay? Um, my husband, Ryan, was a youth pastor for like 14 years in Indiana before we moved to Ohio, to the Valley. Um, and he did a good job, um, but I didn't always really know how to be the wife of a youth pastor. Um, but my first couple years being married to him, um, things were going fine. But I remember one day I saw a video on YouTube that made me laugh, and so I posted it on my Facebook, okay? This is a normal thing to do in 2009. That's just what we did back then. Um, but I posted it, didn't think another thing about it, and then about an hour later, I got a private message from someone in our church. This was an older gentleman, someone that I respected, someone that I had some kind of connection with, and he um, wrote me this private message on Facebook that was like, Jamie, I think you want to take that video down. There are some jokes in that video that are off-color, and you have, a, you have an example to set for the teens in the youth group. Um, and and you know, I, think, I think you're going to want to remove that from your Facebook page. Now, let me be really clear. It was a kindly worded note. No one likes to be told that they did something wrong. Now, as far as I remember, it was mostly innocent. It was like one of those videos where you have like 20 jokes all packed into a really short video. And like most of them were G-rated, but then there was like one that was PG-13, you know. So, so as best I can remember, this was not a huge deal. And this was a very mildly worded message from this man. But he did not know he had found a pain trigger for me, a shame trigger. And I was suddenly in the middle of a snowball, okay? I was not just experiencing this message from this man. I was experiencing the time in college when a parent of a friend of mine, who I knew and respected and liked, jumped up and down on me on Facebook for disagreeing with them on something. Like, just let me have it. It brought back the time in high school when I got called into the school counselor's office and reprimanded because I had been rude to a guest speaker. Okay, it brought back the time in middle school when my history teacher accused me of lying. It brought back the time in elementary school when I cheated on a math test and had to admit it to my teacher, right? It brought back every single time I had ever disappointed someone that I respected. Every single time that I was in the thick of it, I was a disappointment. I was so ashamed, right? I was angry too, but I was so ashamed. I immediately removed that thing from my Facebook page, and I avoided that man for like two or three weeks after that. And that wasn't easy to do, because like I said, we were friendly with him and his family, and he sat close to us in church. You know how you don't have assigned seats, but you have assigned seats, right? They were like right in the line behind us, and so I had to work to avoid this man. 
But I avoided him for like two or three weeks, okay? Because the shame was so much that I just couldn't, I couldn't fully process it. Now, I'm betting that you can think of times when you've been in the middle of a shame spiral as well, and a shame snowball. But here's the thing. When you notice a shame snowball, it's a good clue that there's a shame wound that God might want to work on in you. He doesn't want to leave us in the middle of the snowball. He wants us to see the thing that he's working to heal in our lives. Now, in this story of the woman at the well, we can also see that toxic shame keeps us isolated and it keeps us trapped, okay? That was what was happening to me. I was isolating because of the shame that I was experiencing, right? I avoided this man for weeks. But we see this for the woman at the well, too, right? This woman, she um, was at this well in the hottest part of the day, right at noon, okay? Now, we don't know that that was a thing that nobody ever did, but still, if you're going to be carrying heavy water jugs to and from your home, there are probably other times of the day when you'd prefer to do it rather than the hottest part of the day. It gets really hot midday when you're in the Middle East. Now, also, she lived in a settlement that was probably a good long ways from the well, and there were likely other springs in the area that she could have drawn water from. This region, we know it pretty well. Archaeologists have looked into where this happened. We know that there were springs much closer to the Samaritan settlement than this well. She was going out of her way in the hottest part of the day to get her water. The best explanation that I've got for that is she was avoiding people, right? She just didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to encounter people from her community. She had a reputation. She didn't want to be seen. She was isolating. We do that same thing, right? Now, this woman was super evasive, too, as soon as Jesus brings up her specific shame wound, right? He says, hey, go get your husband, and she shuts down right away. She's been really chatty up until that point, and then she's like, I don't have a husband. No. And then Jesus calls her on it. He says, yes, but like, here's the truth, here's the whole picture, and then she changes the subject really fast. She's like, I can see you're a prophet, let's talk about temples, you know, uh, which is bizarre to us, but we also kind of get it, right? For context, the topic that she's bringing up is also a pretty controversial one, interestingly enough. About 150 years before this conversation took place between Jesus and this woman at the well, we know that there was a temple that was worshiping Yahweh, like it was, a, it was a temple to worship Yahweh that the Samaritans went to to worship, okay? So it was a Samaritan temple as opposed to the Jewish temple that was in Jerusalem. And the Jews hated that the Samaritans had this temple because they felt like it was the wrong place. It wasn't listening to God's way, right? And so the Jews went 150 years before this conversation happened. The Jews went and destroyed the temple to Yahweh that the Samaritans worshiped at. They just totally destroyed it. They said, you're not allowed to do that. And they busted it down. So she's bringing up a conversation that was serious bad blood between their people. She wasn't bringing up some small, like, offhanded comment. She's really, really desperate to get Jesus off of the topic of her marriages, of her experiences. And we get that way too, don't we? When we are seen, when we think our shame is going to be revealed, not only do we isolate, do we hide, but then we also get, like, defensive, right? We get in people's face about it. If we feel like we're, oh no, they're getting too close to the spot, you know, um, then we start to go on the attack. Sometimes we pick a fight rather than having our shame known. And this is something that this woman was definitely dealing with. Now, sometimes it's isolating and avoiding. Sometimes it's getting angry and defensive. And sometimes shame just keeps us trapped, right? Absolutely keeps us trapped. So let me... Um, give you an example to illustrate this. Imagine, if you will, that you have a particular shame trigger related to food. This is a really common one in our culture, by the way. So say you have a particular shame trigger related to your food, and maybe you eat to soothe yourself and eat to kind of feel better at, at times, and it's been a real battle for you, and you're really trying hard to eat better. You're really trying hard to eat healthy, but you're in Kroger one day, and you're walking in the deli section, and you see a beautiful Boston cream pie just sitting there, right? it's a habit. You've had a stressful day. You take the pie, you put it in your cart, you go buy it, you take it home, and you eat a piece of that Boston cream pie, and it's delicious. But then, at the end of that piece, you're in such a shame snowball, right? You're beating yourself up. You think, I'm never going to change. I'm hopeless, right? You're in so much shame. What do you do next? Eat another piece, right? You know this. You might finish that whole pie. You might. 
all in one sitting. Shame isn't helping you break the pattern. Shame keeps you stuck in the pattern, right? We talked about addiction a couple weeks ago in this series, right? This is the, the engine that keeps addiction running, is shame, right? It's the fuel for the system, because when we're experiencing shame, maybe about any of these shame identities that we have, if we're experiencing shame, what do we do? We soothe it with the habit that keeps us trapped, right? And then we're so ashamed about the habit that we go back to it over and over and over again. It's both the fuel for the engine and the exhaust. And so that's why we get stuck, right? Shame, this kind of toxic shame, that's why it leads to death. It not only isolates us, it keeps us absolutely in shackles and absolutely trapped in unhealthy patterns. But it doesn't always stop at trapping us, okay? Shame can also provoke us to lash out at others. I talked a little bit about defensiveness before, but here's the truth. Shame can make us really critical of others, okay? Even if we're not super defensive, it can make us critical of others. Now, the Samaritan woman, almost as soon as she meets Jesus, she's a little critical. She's kind of joking, but she's also kind of insulting. She's like, why don't you have a bucket, you know? There's a well, why can't you get your own water? Get a bucket. She's also like, are you sure you want to be talking to me? Questioning his judgment, right? She's also <laughs> making this comment, are you greater than our father Jacob? Like, who do you think you are, right? She's very critical right off the bat. Now, I mentioned earlier my own shame story about feeling like a disappointment. And I thought that I had done a lot of work on that, but then I had children, right? <laughs> and if anyone can bring out your shame, it's kids if you've got them. Oh my goodness, I love my kids. Um, but when my oldest, Toby, was six years old, he was in kindergarten, um, I realized I still had some work to do, okay? So I, um, at the end of the school year, his kindergarten teacher had assigned all of the students to do a particular project as an end-of-year project. He had to write and illustrate his own picture book. Now, I mean, if any of you have ever been around a six-year-old, that's a tall order, right? And I, in my shame pattern growing up, had learned to cope with my feelings of being a disappointment by intense perfectionism, okay? I was the kid who had to get everything right. I had to get full points on that project. Okay, that was just my pattern. And God had really worked on me a lot at this point, but apparently I still had some healing to do because as soon as Toby, my poor kid, came home with that assignment, I went into like hyper-perfectionist mode and I wanted to be critical of everyone in this situation, right? I wanted to be critical of the teacher. How could she give this stupid assignment, right? What was she thinking? Now, it wasn't her fault. It was a whole, whole, a whole school assignment. Everyone was expected to do it. So it wasn't her fault, but I wanted to be critical of her. I felt like she wasn't helping enough. She wasn't giving him enough instructions. I wanted to be critical of my son, my six-year-old kid. Why doesn't he know the elements of narrative structure at this point? <laughs> right? Why can't he type perfectly? Why can't he draw everything perfectly? What is wrong with this kid? Right? Nothing, by the way. Um, I wanted to be critical of my husband. I was, he wasn't helping him in the right way, you know? Like he was trying to help our son, but I didn't like the way he was doing it. So fortunately, all of this was pouring out of me, but the only person I actually unloaded on was my husband, Ryan, and he loves me, so he forgave me. Um, but I look back on this now, and it is so clear. All of this had nothing to do with these other people. It had nothing to do with the teacher or my son or my husband. It had everything to do with myself and the wound I was carrying around and the shame I was still holding on to, right? And I was using that shame as a weapon against the people that I love most. This is what happens with shame, folks. It makes us into agents of shame in the lives around us, okay? This is how we get stuck in patterns that are generational, Okay, so if you recognize there is an area in your life where you're prone to being critical, check and see, is there a shame wound that's underneath that criticism? Okay, this takes some radical self-reflection here, so I know I'm asking a lot of you, but check and see, is this an area where I'm prone to feeling shame myself? So for example, if you're someone who's usually prone to being critical of the bodies of others, mm, that person's put on a lot of weight, or ooh, they're really skinny. They should go work out, you know? Do they know what they look like in those jeans? Maybe you're carrying some body shame. 
related to comments that were made about you or related to thoughts that you've had about your own self and your own body. If you recognize that you tend to be critical of other people's emotional expression, right? If someone's too angry or too tearful, right? You just can't handle it. You want to shut that down fast. Maybe you're carrying shame related to your own emotional expression. Maybe that was something that was shamed in you when you were a kid. This, by the way, is a big one with men in our culture. Big one. It's not that little boys don't have feelings. They have feelings. But we pass on from generation to generation the expectation that that's not okay. And so we keep in the cycle, right? Man up. Don't be a baby. Stop crying, right? And we carry it on. We carry it on. We do to others what, we, what was done to us. And we're not thinking this. Okay, no one's doing this intentionally, but it's what happens. It's the pattern that we fall into naturally. Now, I know saying that some of you are in a shame snowball right now, okay? So I want to catch you there. Stop it, okay? I know, I know part of brain is saying, you're the worst. How could you possibly have passed this on to your kids? I can't believe you, right? Stop that, okay? The point, like the shame snowball, the point of recognizing this is so that you can understand the wound that God wants to heal and the change that he wants to make in your life. He doesn't want to keep you stuck in those patterns, personally or generationally. He wants to do a new thing and give you a new way of being. And it's beautiful and it's good, I promise. So what's the answer, right? I've talked a lot about what's bad about shame. I don't want to leave you there, okay? Let's talk about what God wants to do about it. So we can see in this story that God is in the business of healing shame wounds because this woman is a very different person at the end of this story than she is at the beginning, right? We can see in the way that Jesus approaches this woman that he knows that there's a different story for her. And here's where it starts, though. It starts with the work of God's Spirit, The truth is the Holy Spirit can give you a new identity and he can give you a new pattern of life. You don't have to stay trapped in old cycles. The very first thing Jesus says to this woman, like right after asking her for a drink, he starts talking about living water, right? Living water is a phrase that's not so familiar with us in our culture, but it was pretty common back in biblical days. It was referring to any water that was running or moving, okay? So like water from a spring or a river or a creek, that would be living water, but stagnant still water would be like that of a pond or a a, a puddle or something, right? Living water was what you wanted. Living water was better. It was fresher. It was cleaner, right? But when Jesus was talking about living water, he's not obviously just talking about water. And in fact, in Scripture, as you go into the Old Testament, you can see the people who are writing Old Testament passages talking about living water as a metaphor for God's presence with his people, okay? And Jesus is using it as a metaphor as well to talk about God's presence in the person of the Holy Spirit in this woman's life and the work that the Holy Spirit wanted to do in her. We know that living water was what Jesus meant to refer to the Spirit because later on in John, we see him using the exact same metaphor in another conversation. And the writer says, yeah, he was talking about the Holy Spirit very directly, okay? So we know this is what Jesus was talking about. But here's the thing, he leads with that. Like, that seems like an odd thing for me. I think if I were having this conversation with this woman, I wouldn't lead with, well, hey, have you met the Holy Spirit, right? Do you know what God can do in your life? I probably wouldn't lead with that, right? I would probably be making small talk for a lot longer. (laughs) He just dives right in. I love it. Um, But we see, though, that Jesus talks about living water right away, and he makes it clear that this water is available to this woman. She doesn't have to have a better identity, right? before she receives from him. She doesn't need to clean up her act before she experiences the Holy Spirit. Even when she starts to pick a fight about temples, he says, you're going to worship in spirit and in truth. You are included in this promise. And I want to say that to you today as well. You are included in this promise. There's no shame that excludes you from receiving the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in your story that's going to shock God so much that it excludes you from experiencing his Holy Spirit. He wants it for you as well. The promise is for you, and when God does his work, the exciting thing is, 
it changes our pattern of life and it sets us free from those old cycles that we've been in. Now, we don't have to keep coming back to the old broken way of being. We don't have to stay stuck in those shame cycles. He can give us a new identity and a new way of being. We have the real thing and we become a spring of living water. We can also see in the way that Jesus approaches this woman, it's a very specific way that he starts to talk with her. And we can see in their interaction that shame, it shrivels up in the light of grace and truth in community, okay? So I made a point of saying grace and truth, that's a reference to another passage, but we can see it all over what Jesus says here in this conversation with this woman, right? There's definitely truth. As soon as she's trying to dodge or avoid the truth, he's calling her on it, right? He says, no, like, we're not, we're not going to go there. He says, yeah, you, you don't have a husband. It's because you've had five, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. So he calls her on her stuff. It's full of truth. But we also see him full of grace, right? He's not rubbing her nose in it. He's not gathering stones to, to throw at her, which was a thing people did, you know? He is sitting with her, acknowledging it, and still connecting with her, and saying, you too can have living water. You're not excluded, right? Full of grace and full of truth. Now, here's the hard truth for you today. You can't get out of your shame pattern if you're keeping your shame a secret. You can't do it. I've never seen it happen, guys, and I work with feelings a lot. I've never seen it happen that you get out of a shame cycle all on your own, isolated, never letting anyone see it. It's not going to happen. Now, I'm not advising that you go to work tomorrow morning and just announce to all your coworkers, so here's my biggest shame secret. Like, don't do that. Don't, okay? Also, I wouldn't advise you just post it on Facebook as soon as you leave your day. Don't do it. It's not a safe place, right? But what I am saying is there is power in finding a person in your life who is full of grace and truth like Jesus was, right? And opening up and sharing the thing that we're afraid to share, okay? Now, I'm not even suggesting that you go to someone you just met last week who's an untested friendship, right? Like, sometimes that's our impulse because we don't want to test the, the friendships that really, really deeply matter to us, okay? I'm not suggesting you test this on a new friend. What I'm saying is someone in your life who you know to be full of grace and full of truth, they're the person that you need to recruit for this kind of healing, okay? That might be one of your pastors here at the Valley. It might be a counselor that you see regularly. It might be a family member that you know is full of wisdom and is full of grace and truth. It might be a good friend that you know you have trust with over a long time, okay? Whoever it is, the point is, in that encounter with them and sharing who you are and receiving from them both grace and truth, there's like this beautiful breaking apart and falling off that happens in that experience. Um, that's what God wants for you. And here's the thing, we, we experience that in our relationship with him as well. Jesus is so good at this, guys. He wants to do this in your prayer life just like he did for the woman at the well. We don't serve a God who's unfamiliar with shame, by the way. Jesus died the most shameful death possible on the cross. He was naked. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was shown up as a criminal and mocked by the other people who were being crucified beside him. He was given the most shameful experience possible, but he did not let it stick to him. He did not let that become his identity. In fact, his identity is that of king, right? He was raised from the dead and did a new thing, and he wants to do a new thing in your life, too. You serve a God who knows what it's like to deal with shame, so you can go to him in safety, knowing that he is going to be full of grace and truth for you as well. It can't just stay vertical, it also has to go horizontal, right? You can pray about it and experience this freedom, but then I, I advise go to the person. Go here and, and have this healing as well. Because God just doesn't want to heal us this direction. He wants to heal us this direction. We know that the outcome of shame is isolation. We know that the outcome of shame is criticism and broken relationships. He wants to heal that too. Not just our identity with him, but our identity in our community. 
You need both, okay? Both are a huge part of it. Now, more than just finding our own healing, though, our own healing and community, our own right relationships, our own better identity and pattern of life, this is the thing I get most excited about, guys. More than just experiencing that healing yourself, with the Spirit working in you and that spring of living water flowing out of you, when you're freed from shame, you will be empowered to change your community. You will be empowered to shift the pattern in your family, to make other people aware of the freedom that's in Christ. You see, this woman at the well was well-known enough in her community that she got their attention. When she went out among them and said, like, hey, there's this guy I met, he told me everything I'd ever done, right? The reason that got their attention is they knew everything that she had ever done, right? They knew her. She wasn't unfamiliar to them. Maybe they weren't close friends of hers, but they knew what kind of a reputation she had. And so if this woman is talking about her story in this community, something has happened, right? It is dramatically different what she's doing at the end of this story. And at the end of this passage that I read, they say as much, right? They say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. They were invited into Jesus's presence because of her radical transformation, and they experienced Jesus directly as well and were transformed themselves. Her whole community was impacted once she was released from her shame. This is the reason, folks, why the enemy why our accuser, the Satan, wants to keep us trapped in shame. This is the reason. Not just because it keeps you in shackles and prevents you from experiencing the joy of the Lord, not just because of that, it's also because it absolutely locks down your ability to have impact in your community. It stops you from being the hands and feet of Jesus, the people around you. He just loves that, right? He loves it when you're miserable and when you're, you're not doing what God has called you to do, when you're trapped and you're stuck. He loves that. It's his favorite thing, okay? That is not the voice of our Savior, okay? Whenever that shame is starting to creep up on you again, when you're tempted to believe the lies that you know are lies, it is not the Lord, it is the enemy trying to keep you stuck, God wants better for us, and he says better of us. He says that you are his beloved child, and that you are deeply loved, and that this promise is for you as well. Now, a few weeks ago, when um, my husband and I, Ryan, Ryan and I, were in our small group, we have our life group up in Piqua, um, we did an exercise with our small group that I really want to share with you guys today. So I want to introduce it now. Don't go get this worksheet right now. You'll get it as you exit, okay? But I want to talk to you about it because here's the deal. I'm giving you homework today, okay? I give homework to my clients all the time. Um, some of them hate it. Uh, you just have to put up with it. The truth is, though, you're in church for what? Like an hour and a half a week, right? God doesn't just want to talk to you when you're here. He wants to keep talking to you throughout your week. He wants you to live out of this new identity. And so I'm going to give you homework and you're going to do it and you're going to let God teach you more, okay? Um, this is a take-home activity. Like I said, it'll be as you exit the building. Don't go yet. Um, there are 24 identity statements on this sheet, okay? And there are identity statements that are found in scripture. They're the truth about you, about who God declares you to be in him. There are things like Ah, uh, I am God's workmanship. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I have been bought with the price. I belong to God. I've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Ooh, that's a good one. So there's a lot of them in there. I want you to read through this identity list, and I want you to, to be tuned in to which ones are really smacking you in the face, okay? By that, I mean they're the ones that you have a hard time believing, they're the ones that you're really notice, they kind of just hit you deep, you know? Those ones, I want you to look up the scripture reference. The reference is there for all of them. So I want you to pull out your Bibles, look up the passage that that's referring to, and sit in it for a while, okay? Say, God, what do you want to teach me in here? What is it you're wanting to, to, to do in my heart and in my life? I've got some questions there that you can journal on if you want. You're welcome to do that. But then when you've processed this and you've heard from the Lord, I want you then to go find that person in your life who's full of grace and truth and also share what God's doing with them, okay? Because God wants to lift that burden. He wants to do a new and beautiful thing in your life.
Now, I'm going to pray for you in a moment, and then after that, the worship band's going to be back up here, and we're going to sing one more song, and you've got a chance to respond right here, right now, okay? We have these prayer stations at the front. You can kneel and pray for a while if that's what God's calling you to do. You can go and light a candle. If there's something that you recognize as a shame wound that you want to hand over to God today and ask for his healing for, I recommend go light a candle for it. You can grab communion. We've got communion up here at the prayer stations and also one in the back. Come and take communion. We serve open communion at the valley, so it doesn't matter if you're a member or not. If you've been here one week or 20,000 weeks, it doesn't matter. You can take communion at the valley if you're in Christ, okay? This is for you as well. And the point of taking communion is as we eat the bread and we drink the juice, we're reminded of Jesus' blood and his body and the sacrifice that he made for us. Today, maybe it's a reminder of the shame that he bore for you and the way that he moved past that shame and wants to move you past the shame that you've been carrying. So I invite you to come and get communion as well if that's something God's calling you to. I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but hear me clearly, brothers and sisters in Christ. You are so deeply loved. You are so deeply loved. There's no identity that you've been carrying that shocks your God. There is nothing, nothing that you have ever done or ever experienced that excludes you from his promise. He wants to do a new thing and he wants to free you in a huge way. Let me pray for you. Abba, Father, you are so good. You are just so good. And I know right now the enemy is at work. He wants to stop some people and say, oh, no, that's not for you. But, Lord, I pray that you would just shut that down right now. And in Jesus' name, you would give victory and give peace and give wholeness where we've experienced brokenness. Lord, make reconciliation something that happens today, Lord. Reconciliation with you and reconciliation with one another. I pray, Lord, that you would be in the business of changing lives and lifting burdens today. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the freedom that we can experience in you, for your grace and for your truth. May our lives be a spring of living water, and may your Holy Spirit flow out of us into our workplace, into our church, into our world. And Father, we pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected with all things The Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend. Because changed lives, changed lives.